0: Europe turns to Israel for a new source of energy and military technology. This is Brief Before Impact. Welcome everyone to today's episode. I am Matt Parker and I thank you for joining me. Today's brief will be discussing how Israel is quickly becoming a a newer ally to the European Union as the Russia-Ukrainian conflict continues to stress both energy supplies to to the European continent as well as the need to diversify for new types of military technology in the event that Europe continues to send billions of dollars in military aid to Ukraine. So we'll be covering the reliance that Europe has of Russian gas imports, its the European Union's transition towards other sources of energy, such as renewables and green energy, uh, as well as nuclear. And then how Israel's going to fit in, both the supplying uh, natural gas as well as defense and military technology. And lastly, we'll close out with some courses of action of how this type of relationship could be moving forward and the impacts it may have. But before we get into it, let me take a quick break, and we will get to work. Welcome back, everyone. So let's first of all cover the actual amount of natural gas being supplied by Russia to the European Union over the last few years and how this has created quite the issue, especially as Russia then invaded Ukraine and European Union launched all these economic sanctions onto Russia, yet still depending deeply on its energy supplies. So according to the BBC, Russia supplied the European Union with 40% of its natural gas last year. Germany, Europe's largest economy, was the largest importer of Russia gas in 2020, and followed by Italy in second after them. The European Union has agreed to ban all Russian oil imports, which come in by sea, by the end of this year. Now, It's going to allow oil to continue to be imported by pipeline, with the European Union leaders saying that this is a temporary measure, because countries like Hungary and Slovakia depend on that oil. The European Union has committed to reducing gas imports from Russia by two-thirds within a year, but it has been hard to get agreement on any further measures, such as an outright import ban. In addition to those EU sanctions, the U.S. has declared a complete ban on Russian oil and gas imports. The U.K. is to phase out Russian oil imports by the end of the year. Now, President Putin has demanded that, quote, unfriendly nations in Europe pay for gas in Russian rubles, which would help prop up the value of their currency. Poland, Bulgaria, and Finland refuse to do so, and Russia cut off their supplies. Several other European energy companies are paying for gas via Russia bank accounts, which convert euro payments into rubles. They insist those payments are in line with EU sanctions. There's doubt over whether the EU will be able to find other gas supplies than Russia's. Quote it would have to turn to producers such as the US and Qatar which would ship liquefied natural gas in tankers that's according to energy advisor Kate Durian but there aren't enough lng that's liquid natural gas lng terminals in europe this will be a problem for germany particularly it simply does not have the equipment to unload it and lastly many european nations could have their oil supply squeezed by the ban on russian imports Lithuania and Finland got about 80% of their oil from Russia in November of last year, according to the latest available data. So as you can see just by these numbers I've outlined, the dependence on Russian oil and natural gas is large, especially over the last few years as the European Union has attempted to move away from fossil fuels being produced domestically in their own countries and more to green and renewable energy resources, though the challenge has been... For those renewable sources like wind and solar, the wind doesn't always blow, the sun is not always out, therefore some countries like Germany actually had to go back up and start uh, getting their coal plants back online just to have enough energy to make it through the colder months of the year. So, As we look at this transition um, that Europe is currently undergoing moving away from fossil fuels with the intent to. Let's kind of dig into the details, what they're trying to achieve. Uh, According to The Guardian, the EU plans a massive increase in solar and wind power and a short-term, that's the quote there, short-term boost for coal to end its reliance on Russian oil and gas as fast as possible. In a planned outline in May of 2022, the European Commission said the EU needed to find an extra 210 billion euros over the next five years to pay for phasing out Russian fossil fuels and speeding up the switch to green energy. The senior officials conceded that in the short term, the race to get off of Russian gas would mean burning more coal and nuclear energy. The plan, drawn up in response to the Kremlin-ordered invasion of Ukraine and subsequent soul-searching of Europe's dependence on Russian gas, this plan proposes upgrades to the EU's Green Deal, the bloc's flagship policy to confront the climate crisis. Now, according to wired.com, on December 31st when Germany shut down 3 of its 6 remaining nuclear plants, by the end of 2022 the other 3 will be shut as well. Now, two decades after an agreement to eliminate nuclear power became law, the country's phase-out has been dramatic in 2002. Germany relied on nuclear power for 30 percent, nearly 30 percent of its electricity. Within a year, that percentage was going to be zero. Germany isn't the only European nation reevaluating its relationship with nuclear energy. Its neighbor, Belgium, continues uh, currently sources nearly 40 percent of its electricity from nuclear power, but has committed to closing down its seven remaining reactors by 2025. To the south, Switzerland has already shut down one of its five remaining nuclear power plants, the first stage in what will be eventually a total phase-out. Now, Switzerland's phase-out was decided in 2017 referendum, when the majority of that public endorsed an energy strategy that subsidized renewables and banned nu- new nuclear power plants. The Swiss referendum was driven by environmental concerns raised in the wake of the 2011 Fukushima disaster when three reactors melted after a tsunami overwhelmed the power plant. That disaster and concerns about the disposal of nuclear waste also hastened Germany's nuclear shutdown. Shortly afterward, then-Chancellor Angela Merkel, who had previously said she didn't agree with the shutting down nuclear plants early, announced that Germany would no longer extend the operating life of existing plants. Critics of Europe's nuclear shutdown say losing reliable sources of low-carbon energy is the last thing we should be doing when we need to reduce emissions. They argue nuclear is one of the safest and lowest carbon forms of electricity generation there is. The big challenge, as I've just been diving into this different research on this transition to more renewable types of energy is, well, why doesn't nuclear have more of a larger part of the conversation? Uh, And often, the direct complaint is the, I should say the waste that are produced by nuclear power plants, according to Energy Information Administration, a major environmental concern related to nuclear power is the creation of radioactive waste, such as uranium mill tailings, spent or used reactor fuels, and other radioactive waste. These materials can remain radioactive and dangerous to human health for thousands of years." That is one of the complaints that many developed nations point to when they're looking at nuclear energy. Personally, not an energy expert here, I imagine, and I need to dig in this more, this issue of how these radioactive materials can be handled and disposed of would probably do a far better job of transitioning away from fossil fuels, relying more on renewables, but still filling the gap of those renewable energy sources when they're not producing energy, when the sun's not shining. Those winds not blowing, etc. Just my opinion. Not the point of the today's podcast. But this is where Europe finds itself after eliminating, uh, eliminating so many other nuclear reactors and trying to depend on renewables, though failing quite short, deepening the reliance on Russian natural gas and oil, which turns us to Europe's need for a new partner in energy. Now that Russia has uh, invaded Ukraine and Devastating economic sanctions from Europe and other countries have been leveled against Russia. European Union's got to find someone else to provide that energy. So where do they go? uh, In my view, an unlikely ally based upon a handful of reasons, but we're going to get into those later. European Union has looked to enhance its relationship with Israel in the Middle East because of its uh, new developments of its natural gas fields off of its coast. I'll give you the details here. According to MaritimeExecutive.com, the European Union is in talks with Israel over a plan to import Israeli natural gas, helping Europe in its project to wean itself off of Russian supplies. Israel's prolific offshore natural gas resources, like the Levitian field, are only beginning development. However, at present, the nation has limited access to the market. Turkey claims a substantial part of Cyprus's offshore reserves as its own. And the idea of the pipeline that would bypass a Turkish interest and bring Cypriot gas to Europe was inflammatory to the administration of Turkish President Erdogan. See, Erdogan, representing Turkey, doesn't like the idea that Israel can go out to the Mediterranean, uh, develop these natural gas fields, and then ship it... uh, Near Cy- near Cypriot or near Cyprus, but it not getting paid, and this is a whole other issue of how the country of Cyprus uh, and Turkey have a long-standing relationship and feud, frankly, on who owns that land. It's another episode for another time. My point being, and why bringing it up, is that there are multiple players in this um, current development of European Union looking for other suppliers for natural gas, looking directly towards Israel. The Turkey being one of the main uh, opponents of not seeing any of that money being uh, coming from the natural gas products out of those fields in the Mediterranean. So returning to this, Turkey wants to see Israeli gas flow through its own pipeline network to Europe, mirroring the arrangements that Turkish pipeline operators have with Russian and Azerbaijani suppliers. The route envisioned would pass through the Cypriot economic zone as coastal states do not have jurisdiction over the installation. Of transboundary pipelines within their economic zones. Cyprus has a fraught relationship with Turkey and diplomatic friction would be likely. Now, the other export options for the Levithian field include an overland pipeline to carry Israeli gas to Egypt via Jordan. The Egyptian liquid natural gas export option appears to be gaining traction. The Israeli Energy Ministry recently announced that it is in its negotiations with the European Union over the possibility of using Egypt's two liquid natural gas plants for this purpose. According to the Energy Ministry Director General, uh, Shalat, quote, Egypt has two liquid liquef- liquefaction facilities and is able to export gas to Europe, where they have the facilities to turn it back into gas. The EU has officially asked for Israel's help to get through this energy crisis, end quote. Now, the cooperation between Israel and the European Union is a long-term arrangement, according to Shalat, as Europe is expected to need a steady supply for years in order to replace Russian gas. So European Union appears, by all metrics, to be truly leaving the, the stronghold of Russia's energy uh, supplies and moving towards alternates, obviously renewables like we mentioned, but Israel providing potentially providing uh, natural gas to the entire continent. In addition to energy being something the European Union is looking to diversify in, they're also looking to Israel in terms of its military technology. You might not know this um, if you're not into this kind of topic, but the, the Israeli Defense Forces and its private sector, of course, is punching above its weight in terms of its development of military technology, and that would include... Uh, cybersecurity as well, which I've talked covered in, in brief episodes or other episodes very briefly, and the European Union sees Israel's cutting edge technology. Wants kind of wants to have a, an additional partner to providing, uh, if they're going to continue providing so many billions of dollars in direct aid and military tech to Ukraine. Then, in fact, they might be partnering with Israel and its many companies to provide some of that developing technology. So. Uh, Ursula von der Leyen who is the president of European Commission as she made a trip recently to Israel and indicated that Europe sees Jerusalem as a valuable ally on defense, energy, food security and says Iran deal is ready political decisions are needed. So many things are happening with this relationship between the European Union and Israel. And according to the Times of Israel, the heart of this trip is ultimately the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the profound reorientation sparked by that aggression, including Europe's sudden need to expand its defense capabilities, energy supply, and food security. Now, ahead of her visit to Israel, von der Leyen, spoke with the times of israel in an exchange about where europe stands nearly four months into the russian invasion her tone is uncompromising and she says quote our sanctions aim to drain the kremlin's resources we will keep the pressure on for as long as it takes end quote and her commitment to a more powerful europe is explicit she says quote europe needs to reinforce its ability to deal with security threats and to protect its citizens and interests, end quote. Now, part of this European pivot is expressing itself in an intensification of its relationship with Israel. Defense ties have been flourishing in recent months at the Eurosetory defense shows in Paris that opens uh, up last month, as many of 56 Israeli companies uh, were expected to show their Technology Within European defense agencies looking to spend as much as 200 billion euros to quickly upgrade their defense capabilities against further Russian expansionism, many have turned to Israel for solutions. When it comes to artificial intelligence, drones, precision targeting, smart coordinating systems for ground forces, firearm scopes, and more unusual technologies such as radars carried by infantry that can see through walls, Israel is the cutting edge. Additionally to this, culturally and economically too, Israel is western oriented, economically developed, scientifically advanced and politically stable relatively speaking, nation lying scarcely 200 kilometers from the European Union member state of Cyprus. That alone has driven major effects or major efforts at a collaboration between the EU and the Jewish state. And During an interview with the Times of Israel, uh, the question was asked to Van der Leyen, uh, the president of the European Commission, what's the end game of the sanctions? What's Europe's specific demand from Moscow? And Van der Leyen's quote is the following, her response. There is one clear demand, not just by Europe, but by a wider international community. Russia must respect the United Nations Charter. This means stopping the violation of international law, ending the unprovoked aggression against the Ukrainian people, and withdrawing the invading Russian troops from Ukrainian territory. We impose sanctions as a response to Russia's blatant violations of the territorial integrity and sovereignty of Ukraine, and to the atrocities committed by the Kremlin's troops on Ukrainian people. Our sanctions aim to drain the Kremlin's resources and their ability to finance their illegal and unjustifiable war. We will keep the pressure on for as long as it takes." The EU's conviction seems to be clear. If you're looking at its leadership, um, the movement that the the trading bloc is moving towards and its diversification of both energy and defense ties, this is pretty tremendous, I would say. And they'll have... Multiple ripples and effects in the international community moving forward, which is why I wanted to bring up this point, especially in light of uh, von der Leyen's response to that question, implicating that Russia has to respect the United Nations Charter. Most people don't pay attention to the United Nations, broadly speaking, in America. Occasionally, you'll find a speech that's given by some political leader of country X, Y, or Z that will be... Hosted at the United Nations and it'll find its way on mainstream media. Overall, though, the American people, I'd say, don't have really pulse on what's going on in the United Nations. And frankly, that's fine by me. Uh, that being said, there is something very revealing about the United Nations and how it has treated Israel. Israel, especially in its founding as a modern state in the nineteen late 1940s, has had a... I don't even know if complex quite does it justice, but it hasn't been easy history over the last uh, several decades, specifically with this relationship with the Palestinian people and the Israeli state, it has uh, bumped heads quite a bit. You have often seen in news reports uh, of different organizations such as um, Hamas or Hezbollah attacking the state of Israel with missile attacks. suicide bombers, kidnappings, uh, assassinations, and the such. So it has been a region of the world fraught with tension for the last several decades. But I want to bring up this point of how the United Nations treats uh, treats Israel in the international community on the world stage of the United Nations because it's important to point out that I think this relationship that we've seen between the United Nations and Israel and how we've seen it in the past is perhaps going to be changing in the near future, especially as the European continent is relying less on Russian uh, imports of energy and looking to diversify its supplies to Israel. Let me point out the exact details, and this is according to UnitedNationsWatch.org. In the current 76th session of the United Nations General Assembly, so it's 2021 to 2022, European Union member states are likely to vote for one resolution each on the human rights situations in these countries. Iran, Syria, North Korea, Myanmar, which is also known as Burma, and Crimea. So, European member states will vote on one resolution regarding human rights for each of those countries. By contrast... European Union states will likely vote in favor of nearly all 14 resolutions singling out Israel. 14 just towards Israel. North Korea gets one resolution. A country that has enslaved millions of people and they're starving them to death. They only get one resolution. Israel, on the contrary, gets 14 and the European Union states will most likely vote in favor for all those 14. These same European Union states have failed to introduce a single General Assembly resolution this year on the human rights situation in China or Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, Cuba, Turkey, Pakistan, Vietnam, Algeria, or so on. The point I'm bringing up all this kind of UN votes and resolutions and et cetera is to point out that Israel is, it, continues to be targeted by the international community because of how the relationship between the Palestinian people and the state of Israel, how the state of Israel treats the Palestinian people and its representatives and the land that one state is trying to claim or the other group is trying to claim and that conflict that exists between the two of them. 14 resolutions singling out Israel versus all these other quite horrific dictatorships getting just barely mentioned. Now, this is the past on how Israel has been treated by the United Nations. And I would be very interested to see as this development between the EU and Israel for energy and military technology becomes more in-depth and uh, more resourceful, how this kind of these kind of votes targeting Israel will p- perhaps be limited or not to such a strong demand. In my own kind of words in the last, this I should say the source of the conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis, in its disagreement, this is again in my view, it's a disagreement of a rightful claim. What I mean by that, in like their specific context, the question is, who has a legal claim to this land? That's what the Palestinians and the Israelis are, are debating about. That's a big generalization. I'm painting with a broad brush, but go with me on this one. This is more or less what all these United Nations resolutions are pointing towards. They're revolving around this, this problem, legal claim over land. Now, all the details, the gunfights, the wars, that happens in a small strip, the small strip of land, and it just kind of revolves around that question, and that's subsequent disagreement. Uh, just out of just immense curiosity, I've just been deep diving into the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and you'll hear more episodes on this subject from me in, in the future. But I find it very telling that von der Leyen points out that Russia has to respect the United Nations Charter. And now, despite past resolutions towards, or I should say, against Israel coming from being voted on by European Union states, uh, we'll see how they'll, Israel, the state of Israel, will be treated in the international community as it becomes a more, uh, more meaningful partner on the issue of energy and military technology moving forward. And this closes us out for this episode. Let me give you our course of actions in my assessment of what will happen with Europe as it continues this um, moving away from Russian energy supplies. So the most like- likeliest course of action, in my view, is that Europe will most likely endure high energy prices as it transitions away from Russian energy imports, relying on other suppliers, as well as it's developing more renewable energy transition. And we've seen these elevated energy prices in Europe. And in my view, that will most likely continue as it goes through that transition. The most dangerous course of action is that Europe could weaken its energy transition by depending too heavily on inconsistent renewable energy resources causing a continued high energy prices. And maintaining those elevated high prices could lead to a regional populist movement implicating European Union members' elections. You've heard me talk about this populist movement in recent episodes. This could be a potential outcome of energy prices remaining elevated in Europe, especially if the European Union focuses too much on investing in those renewable energy resources and not balancing it and treating it like a basket full of multiple eggs to pull from when it needs to, and utilizing sources like nuclear or other even fossil fuels, basically giving its pushing its citizens too hard, too fast into the renewables, and depending and depending on fossil fuels entirely too uh, too little, realizing in those colder months that it needs them. This is, in my view, the most dangerous course of action. I hope you've enjoyed this topic. I do find it fascinating, troubling all the same, especially as Ukrainians continue to fight Russian forces in the eastern parts of Ukraine. But there are multiple ripples and effects that we see in geopolitics. The invasion of one country by another and how that is shifting the tides, economics, culture, um, defense alliances even. And it's all going to have a different impact on, on these parts of the world. And that includes the United States and our relationship with these countries and these unions. So thanks for tuning in. As always, I hope you are picking up what I'm putting down. I am Matt Parker. This is Brief Before Impact.